0: Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you don't think I'm lazy by sitting here, but uh, we're going to try to make this work. All right, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and the passage this morning is Matthew 10, and we're going to look at uh, verses 34 through 39. So let's take a look at that. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We have said many times in the past that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is revolutionary, and this is no exception uh, to that rule. Um, In fact, these words are almost shocking uh, to read and to hear. We prefer to hear words like, Come unto me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or we gravitate towards words, um, the peace words that Jesus promises. For example, in John fourteen twenty-seven, where he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But this section of Matthew's gospel speaks not about peace, but about war. He speaks of no peace. He speaks of a sword. He speaks about being against others or others being against us. He speaks of traitorous family relationships and losing one's own life. This is not a picture of peace. This is a picture of war. And many believers, as they read these words, have difficulty or trouble reconciling These these verses with so many other verses about peace, and so how do we reconcile his promise of peace with these terms of war? We are called in Matthew chapter five, verse nine, in the uh, Beatitudes. It says, um, "Blessed are the peacemakers." We are told in Acts ten thirty six that we are to preach peace. In Romans 10, 15, um, we are told that how beautiful are the feet of those who uh, preach the gospel of peace and glad tidings of good things. And we are to pursue the things which make for peace, we see in Romans 14, 19. And in almost every letter, if not every letter that Paul writes, he begins the writing by saying grace and peace. So why does Jesus speak of war. So in order to look at this um, in its proper context, I think we need to go back to the beginning of, really not the beginning of time, but to the beginning of Jesus' first coming. And so we divide um, history in a sense by uh, Jesus' first coming, and then we also talk about his second coming. So I want to talk about both this morning, And let's look, first of all, at his first coming. And so you have to ask yourself the question, did Jesus come to bring peace or did he come to bring the sword? What was the purpose of his first coming? You will remember that um, Zacharias um, in, in Matthew spoke about John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he prophesied that he would go before him and prepare the way for him and speak to the people about salvation and remission of sins. His ministry would speak about the tender mercy of God and God vis- visiting as the day spring from on high. And this is what he said about the Messiah that he would come to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet. Into the way of peace. So it sounds from that verse, which was a prophecy concerning Christ, that he was coming to bring peace. Then we go to the famous Christmas passage in in the Gospel of Luke. At the birth of Jesus, an angel appeared to the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And when that happened, the shepherds freaked out. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And once that angel got the message out, uh, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. So the first coming of Christ as Savior was announced as a coming of peace and goodwill toward men. If we fast forward to the time of Christ's death or near his death, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be crucified. And he said to them in John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And this is very interesting because Jesus makes it clear that peace comes through him. We have peace because of him, and we find our peace in him. And he contrasts the peace that we have in him with the tribulation that we're going to find as we live and we experience in the world. Then we come to what happened after the death of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, of course, he died for you and for me. He suffered the wrath of God for our sins against God. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus and believe that he died on the cross for us, and he rose again the third day, he saves us, and we are declared righteous before God. He, he declares us to be perfect, holy, righteous before God. We are no longer enemies at war with him, but we have accepted the terms of peace, which is really a humble receiving of his gift of salvation. And so we have, we are, uh, Paul writes and he says in Romans that uh, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the battle that was raging over my soul is over. The peace that I did not have, I now have because I am found in Jesus Christ. He is my peace. And this inner peace is given to me by the Lord As Jesus said, in me, you may have peace. And so it's true that when Jesus came the first time, his coming was for our peace, that we might have peace with God because we did not have it before he came. We were enemies of God. And so at his first coming, he came to bring peace, peace between me and God, peace between you and God. At his second coming... We read many, many scriptures that uh, tell us that he is coming again, and and his coming will be to bring peace, ultimately. There is a battle, obviously, that is going to take place, but at the end of that, um, he is going to bring peace to a war-torn world. And so let's take a look at some of those prophecies and some of those verses as well. So the second coming of Christ, as you know, has several stages to it. The first stage that we're waiting for with anticipation is the rapture. The Lord is going to to come to the air. He's going to call us as believers home to be with Him. Those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But while we are in heaven... On earth for seven years, there will be a a tribulation, and ultimately the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation, and it's a time of terrible uh, distress on the earth. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, all kinds of terrible things will be taking place on the earth. There will be no peace during that time. It will be... um, But ultimately when the Lord comes back to the earth, he will put down his enemies, his enemies will be made his footstool, and he will establish a 1,000-year reign of peace on the earth. Um, If you remember, in fact, i would just turn to this for just a second. If you go to Isaiah uh, chapter 9, we actually have both comings in the same uh, passage. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born unto us, a son is given, that is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. And we already saw that when the angels announced his coming, it was a, uh, an announcement of peace. Then the, the almost imperceivably, we, we see that uh, in verse six it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. This is actually uh, going all the way through his, his time on earth. The the current 2,000 years since his death and burial and resurrection and through to the end of the tribulation period, we come to this section of the scripture, it says, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we, we see who he is. He is the prince of peace, the governor or the, the king of peace, shall we say, the one who, who rules in peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so we are looking forward So we look back to a time when he came in peace. We look forward to a time when he's coming to establish peace on the earth and peace forever, it says. Uh, During that time when he uh, established the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, wars will cease. The prophets describe it as a time... Um, both in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and Micah chapter 4, verse 3, it says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And instead of making war machines, factories will manufacture implements of agriculture. It's a time. Of peace. Then we move forward from there to the eternal state, which is after the millennium, when all of Earth's history is completed, when Satan and the fallen angels and all of God's enemies are cast into the lake of fire, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be, as we read, everlasting peace. This is the eternal state. It's it's a time that never never ends. It's a time. Where the Bible describes it, there will be no night there. So there's no fear. Fear comes at night because men's hearts are dark and they do their evil in dark. But there's no night there. There's nothing to fear. It says in the scripture that even the gates of the city remain open. And so for you who are afraid and lock your car doors before you go inside and lock your house front door when you go inside, even the city gates that he's describing will be left open. Why? There's no need for fear. There's no need for worry that an invading army will come. There are no more enemies. There are no more wars. There is no more crying. There is no more tear or fear. This is a picture of peace. So I go back to what we have established so far. At his first coming, he came to bring peace inner peace that we have when we come and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. At his second coming, he is ultimately coming to to establish peace on the earth and an eternal reign of peace uh, by the Prince of Peace. But what about our current day? What about right now? Uh, The time between his first coming and his second coming. We are in what is known as the church age and right to the end, from, through the church age and right to the end of the tribulation, the gospel of peace still goes out to an unbelieving world, but as you may have already experienced in your own life with your own witnessing opportunities, the message is not always received well. And very often there are battles that are fought. Sometimes they're verbal, sometimes they're physical and sometimes they result in death. And all of that has taken place from the time Jesus ascended into heaven. We had the first martyr, Stephen, who was stoned for preaching the gospel, and we will have the blood of martyrs continually staining this earth until the time when Jesus establishes his rightful reign on the earth and his kingdom of peace. God has entrusted to us the gospel to bring to unbelievers throughout the world. It's the good news of peace, how unbelievers can have peace with God as well. And God is offering terms of peace to his enemies. These are enemies as we once were, enemies of God, strangers from his his, uh, promises, and we were enemies and yet we have become sons and daughters. And so there are unbelievers still on the earth who need to hear this message of peace. But not everyone wants to hear this message. Not everyone wants to be at peace with God. Earlier in Matthew 10, I think Noed and, and perhaps others uh, spoke on this, these passages. Um, Jesus sent his disciples out and said to them to go to households to preach the gospel. And he says, If they receive you, let your peace come upon it. So the idea was, that the disciples or the followers of Jesus were to go out and preach the gospel. When they came to a household, if it was a household of peace, they were to say, my peace be upon you. And if you were received and your message was received, you were to allow or you were to stay and you were to preach the gospel of peace. But if they did not receive you, Jesus said, let your peace return to you. And he goes on to say those who reject the only true way of salvation are doomed for destruction that is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as we saw Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by by fire from heaven, so those who ultimately reject the gospel are going to suffer eternal fire in the lake of fire. Jesus did not paint this picture of going out into the world to preach the gospel like a picnic in the park. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, it's important for us to um, remember that when we present the gospel, we are not trying to make enemies. We are not trying to offend people in the sense of making them mad at us or, or um, angry. That will happen naturally because the gospel is is not a pleasant message to hear. The first part of the gospel is not pleasant when you are calling people sinners and you're telling them, "Look, you've sinned against God. You need to be made right with God." The gospel is called good news because the end of the story is that your sins can be forgiven because Jesus paid for your sins in full on the cross. But as we present the gospel, we should do so with all humility, but we are likely to face conflict, animosity, and disputes. Jesus continued by saying, therefore, be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Doves are a symbol of peace. We we are not looking for a fight. We are seeking to bring a message of peace. But we may end up with a fight, not because we have been antagonistic, but because people are antagonistic toward the gospel. So the Lord continues earlier in in Matthew 10, and he tells his followers that they will be brought into courts, they will be scourged, they will stand before governors and kings, and we, we may experience the hatred of family members who will rise up against us. Unbelieving brothers will turn on believing brothers. An unsaved father will turn on his saved child. Unconverted children will turn on believing parents. And so Jesus is painting a picture of what actually happened during the time, the persecution, right after he ascended into heaven and the gospel went out uh, to, the, to the Jews. And there was tremendous persecution, so much so that there was a mass exodus from Jerusalem out into the furthest corners of the earth. Now, the Lord used that to, to bring the gospel even further out. But the point is that the persecution rose very suddenly, very quickly, as soon as the gospel message still went out. Uh, and it and it continued to happen, it continues to this day. There are many uh, people today in communist countries who do not have the freedom to preach the gospel. If they do, they may suffer persecution, even death. It's true in Muslim countries, and it's true even in many Catholic countries. And that will happen in, in an even greater way, in fact, what I would call a demonic way uh, during the tribulation period. So Jesus' words, as he describes this earlier in chapter 10, he's describing conditions of war. This is what we are going to face as believers if we're true to the gospel. And just as people turned in Jews who were living amongst them in Nazi Germany and uh, during World War II, so it will be towards believers, not only now but in the time to come especially, Uh, during the tribulation period. And honestly, if you look at our world conditions today, even some of the things that are happening in the United States, we see the birth pangs already. The signs of the coming tribulation are already here. Even now as anarchists rise up and anyone who dares speak against their political agenda uh, are targets and are accused of hate crimes. And and to bring the gospel message into that sort of a scenario, that sort of situation, expect rocks to fly. Expect to be uh, hated. Evil is being unleashed on our streets in our day. But peace is still being offered today through repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. But many many people respond. Listen, if they won't even have police reign over them, They won't have government reign over them. These are the same kind of people that will say to Jesus, we will not have this man reign over me. We see the birth pangs of what is to come. So when we come to Matthew 10, 34, which is our passage this morning, Jesus is speaking in this context of chapter 10, and he's saying plainly, no peace. He's speaking about a sword. And he's speaking about enemies. We are not living in a time of peace, even though we may have personal peace with God. And so as Jesus prepares his followers, he's also preparing us to face the reality of conditions that are coming our way, if you have not already experienced some of this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, You have peace with God. That's that's the most important peace right there. You are in a right relationship with God. But as you take this gospel of peace, this message of good news uh, to others, you will face opposition. You will face persecution. Strangers will rise up against you. Unbelieving friends may unfriend you or turn against you. And that's hard to bear, but it's not completely unexpected if you're talking about strangers or even casual friends or even close friends. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is not speaking about strangers. He's not speaking about friends or acquaintances. Jesus is speaking about family members who not only reject us, but rise up against us as if we are in war with them. That can be devastating. So again, let's read the passage. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, if you have your Bible open, or if your app also shows this, you may see that some of the words in this passage are italicized. It's not because they don't belong. It's because they do belong. And he's actually quoting from the prophet Micah in uh, the Old Testament. And it's an interesting passage. If you go back to Micah, and you read the context of this passage and these words, you will see that Micah was called by the Lord to rebuke the nation of Israel for its sins. And he he tells the nation of judgment that is coming. And then he describes the condition of the nation. God wanted to find in Israel and among His people justice, mercy, and humility before God. But that is not what he found. What what if he looked at the USA today? What if he looked at so-called Christian America today? Would he find justice, mercy, and humility before God? I don't think so. He might find it in some places, but overall we are seeing less and less of this. The nation was, of Israel was filled with dishonest business practices. People were being ripped off. Violence filled the streets. People were spouting lies as if it were the truth. They had statues all over the place. Not that they were tearing down, but they were actually worshiping these statues. This was an abomination. They were not caring for the poor. They didn't care for the disadvantaged. There were no gleanings in the field that they were supposed to leave for those who were in poverty. Murder was in the hearts of people and they were lying in wait for blood. They were bribing judges and politicians. There was no justice in the courts. Rich and influential people took advantage of the poor. This was the condition of the nation of Israel that Micah was called to preach to. Does it sound familiar? Micah was called a watchman on the wall, and he was to warn the nation of impending danger. What was the impending danger? Judgment from God. He was sent into a world like that. And these conditions that I described really are not far from what we are seeing in our evening news. Violence fills our streets. Burning. No respect for law and order. Anarchy that prevails. Prisons are being emptied of convicted criminals. Rich and influential people are taking advantage of the poor. Bribery, unjust judges, corrupt politicians are common. There is murder and bloodshed in the hearts of people. You've seen over last weekend, who knows what we'll see this weekend. But last weekend, the number of murders that took place in cities across the country, people driving by and just shooting innocent people, even children, murder and bloodshed in the hearts of men. And this is the condition of the nation that we are called to preach to. We should be like watchmen on the city wall, still warning of impending judgment. To Micah and to us, um, The Lord says this, do not trust in a friend, do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom, your own wife. For son dishonors father, he's saying your son may turn against you. A daughter rises against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. This is the quotation that Jesus used from Micah in Matthew chapter 10. And the Lord does not say to Micah, listen, if that happens, Micah, I will completely understand if you stop speaking for me and you water down your message, and you come down from that wall as a watchman. I'll completely understand it, Micah. I know this is hard, so I'm not going to press you to be faithful to me if you face such a challenge from your own family turning against you. No, he does not say that. And he does not say that in Matthew's gospel either to us. When you become a Christian, you may find terrible opposition and even hatred from your own unbelieving sons or daughters. You may have wars or opposition from your in-laws who hate your very existence and stand in opposition to everything you stand for and everything you do for the Lord. And as hurtful as it may be, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. It's even more hurtful, it's even harder When you're getting that kind of response from your own family members. Your own flesh and blood. But if the Lord allows this in our lives. It becomes a test of our allegiance to him. He says he who loves father or mother more than me. Is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me. Is not worthy of me. Now. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are to love our father and mother. In fact, it goes even further than that and says in their old age, when they need help, we are to help them. We are to give to them. We are to care for them. For to do less than that is worse than an infidel. It's worse than an unbeliever. Also, we are told we are to love our children. We are to care for them. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Children are to love their parents and honor them. But even these relationships must be sacrificed if they interfere with our relationship with Christ. If family members are dragging you down and trying to influence you to do evil or to turn from following after the Lord or turn from your love for the Lord, you must resist them. Your love for the Lord must come first above all other loves. Now, there's an example of this given in Scripture, and we may not naturally think of this as an example, but let's take a look at it anyway. Uh, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's a story of two unbelievers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16, two unbelievers who fall in love, they get married to one another, they're living in happy matrimony, living very happily together, and somewhere along the way, one of them hears the gospel, repents of her sin, and trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And all of a sudden things change. So let's take a look at it. Verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So the first case is a man, the man comes to know the Lord and the wife doesn't believe, but if she's willing to live with him, he should let her live with him. Uh, Verse 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So you have it either case. Either the man comes to know the Lord or the woman comes to know the Lord. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to carry on living together with them, then that's fine. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And if the unbeliever departs, in other words, divorces, Let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So obviously, love for Jesus Christ came first in that relationship, and as a result, The unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife wanted nothing more to do with the Christian spouse, and they essentially became adversaries. An end to the relationship was the result, and the Lord allows divorce in such cases because God has called us to peace. Because you don't know if you stay in that relationship that you're going to influence the unbeliever to the point where they come to know the Lord. And so if they want out, if the unbeliever wants out, you are to grant them that divorce. That's the principle in a marriage. But that same principle applies to other familial relationships. To stop serving the Lord, to appease an unbelieving relative makes no sense. Your love for Christ has to come first. For you do not know whether maintaining a relationship with an unsaved relative is ultimately going to lead them to Christ. You don't know that. Don't do anything to hate them or to show animosity toward them. That's not what he's saying here. Don't you become an enemy against them or toward them, even if they become an enemy towards you. They are against you, and they are against the Christ in whom you trust. But you serve the Lord, love the Lord, and be worthy of the Lord. Some of you are facing that very challenge today with family members. I have faced it with family members for years, decades. And uh, whether uh, it's a divorce, or it's an unsaved spouse, or its hatred from brothers or sisters or parents or children or in-laws or cousins or blood relatives in some way, let your love for Christ be supreme. Micah 7.7 says, in the midst of all this that, that the Lord is quoting from, Micah says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Finally, we read in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, really the most challenging verses in this section at all. If you thought it was already challenging, this is even more so. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Traitors may be strangers. Traitors may be friends. Traitors may be blood relatives, family members. But the greatest traitor of them all could be, maybe, one's own self. When I think of those who have been martyred for their faith, I see men and I see women who took up their cross and literally died for the sake of Christ. Their love for Christ surpassed their love for themselves. And that is what Jesus means here. He is not speaking of some trial that may come in your life. It is not he's not talking about some disability like a broken foot. He is not talking about financial troubles that you may experience when he's talking about taking up your cross. When he says, take up your cross, anyone living at that time would understand fully that what he meant was an instrument of death. Anyone recognized that he was talking about a form of execution. And the Lord is saying that if we are not willing to lay down our life for him we are not worthy of him. That's challenging, brothers and sisters, because we tend to want to, we are, self-preservation is so much at the forefront of our thinking. And yet Jesus says, take up your cross and um, follow him. With verse 39, we will end today. It says, if you find your life, in other words, if you live for yourself and live for self-preservation, never really using your life in any way to serve the Lord, you will ultimately lose your life. It will be a wasted life because that's not why God has you here. If you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you will find it. Instead of using your life to satisfy every desire that you have, instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you you will actually, I don't know if I said this right, let me repeat this. Instead of using your life to satisfy your every desire, but instead, if you use your life to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will actually fulfill the purpose for which God placed you on earth and for which he saved you. And it will be the most fulfilling, the most satisfying life you can live, living all out for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we hear your uh, revolutionary words, Lord. They they strike home in ways that are deep and, and palpable. We cry out to you, Lord, that we might not run from these truths or run from what you have called us to do. Lord, you've saved us to live our life for you, to give our life um, for you in every way. And Lord, we pray that we would not uh, hold back from any of that as you call us. Lord, we know that no matter what you have in store for us, that you will give us strength. You will not give us more than we're able to endure and that you will give us uh, your help and grace in a time of need. And so, Lord, we look for that as we move forward. In our walk before you, help us, Lord, to be worthy of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.